Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? running your first marathon, or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight, because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Hey, everyone. Richard here. I'm heading out the door to make my way to Austin, Texas. I'm going to connect with my dear friend, Yancey Culp, and we've scheduled a visit for me and my posse, Miguel Medina and Nicodemus Holland, to come out and put on a two-day running clinic. We're way excited to have a chance to meet and work with a bunch of dedicated obstacle racing athletes. However, I did not want to leave you hanging, so I brought out a show from our archive we did a few years ago. It's an interview with Gilbert Tuabunye. If you've not heard it, it is a must-listen to. This is still the most powerful jaw-dropping interview we've ever done. You really need to relax, listen to this story. Keep some tissue handy, and uh, FYI, I have an amazing show scheduled for next week with a Navy SEAL by the name of Stu Smith, and Stu is an expert on training, and we're going to have him share some insights on dealing with hypothermia and racing in frigid water. If you've come out of a race DNF'd because you couldn't finish freezing to death, you don't want to miss this one. So with no further delay, here is our show, circa December 2013. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Friday to you, and uh, happy holidays, I guess is an appropriate thing to say today, you know, with Christmas just around the corner. Good morning to Erica. Erica, I haven't talked to you in a while. You've been good? Everything cool? I I know. All is good. All is good. You know, just, uh, just like you, you pointed out, you know, a little crazy with the holidays, Hanukkah wrapping up, Christmas beginning. My girls get out of school today. It's like cuckoo over here. But yeah, yeah all I've good. been pretty busy myself. Uh, lots of stuff going on right now. We'll We'll get a chance to catch up after the show. Right. But uh, I have to tell you that I've, I'm very, very excited about the show today. Uh, we have Likewise. got an interview that, um, it, you know, it's going to be a tough one to top. It really is. We're going to be interviewing Gilbert, and I, pro- I apologize if I screw this up, Tuabonye, I think it is. Gilbert Tuabonye. He's, he's an African, and he has written a few books about his life coming up in Africa, and he is a middle-distance runner uh, that is actually coaching runners in Texas now, and I I followed his books. What an interesting story this guy has. I mean, he basically escaped, narrowly escaped, an uprising that occurred in Burundi where they burned and killed and macheted all of his friends in school, 
and he was the only one that escaped. He was set afire, beaten, narrowly killed, got out a window, and ran for his life. And the the end of the story basically is he is alive and well, living in Texas, and he's coaching runners. And it's just a fascinating story. He's a national caliber runner. He is he's the stuff of dreams when we speak of African runners. He is that guy. I mean, I'm reading in his book here where coming up as a 10-year-old boy, uh, chasing down antelope on foot with his father, uh, and to to hunt for meat with a spear. And when you talk about the greatness of these these African runners, this is where it stems from. This is where it all comes from. The passion for their running all comes from essentially the way they were raised. And I, it's I just going to be a fascinating opportunity for us to to share his story with the world here. And, again, I'm just beside myself with excitement over uh, the opportunity. I agree. I absolutely agree. And, you know, you're talking about the passion of running. I think, like you say, in that lifestyle, in that in that culture, that it's, that is the true circle of life right there. You know, you, you if you don't catch that antelope or whatever it is you're, you're running down, you're probably not going to eat that night, right? So I think... No, it's interesting. I, I, I know so little about this culture. Uh, obviously, I, I've spent a lot of time uh, studying the, the way they run and, and you know, how they have become these right. just incredible runners. But the backstory on the way they live day to day, you know, I'm reading about him as a young boy. Every morning their deal is to go down the mountain to get water, and his mother would carry this heavy clay pot on her head with water. I haven't really gotten to understand yet what it possibly weighed or whether they even concerned themselves with the weight of it. Right. Going back up the mountain every day with this pot of water on her head. <laughs> and uh, I'm reading about as a young boy how he, he enjoyed sliding down the mountainside on a banana leaf. The, the pride of his life was to finally be awarded the opportunity to carry the water back up the mountain himself. You know, and um, yeah. he because he enjoyed you know playing on the mountain so much that he you know to make up the time so his mother wouldn't find out he was messing around, he would end up running up the mountain with this clay pot full of water on top of his head. And this pot is a very cherished uh, device in their in their household, and to break it would be tantamount of disaster. I mean, then then that means no no water for a while till they get right. another pot. Right. So he was basically risking a beating from his mother or his parents uh, had he broke that pot and at the same time feeling like, you know, he wa- he's basically doing wind sprints up the mountain with a clay pot. <laughs> set. So I don't you know when the last time too, you right? had a chance to run with a clay pot on your head. <laughs> no. But if you decide to try no. that, I, would you please let me know because no, I yeah. definitely want to be there to film it. I, I, I carry my water in my camel pack right now. <laughs> no, no clay pots for me. But you complain about right, the weight. Right. I know. I know. I know. You well, know listen, I, uh, it like, looks like I've got him on the line, so I'm going to leave you for a second okay. so I can chat with him real quickly in the green room, and then we'll, uh, we'll, br- we'll bring him on. So here are my thoughts listening to Richard is, is the clay pot thing. It sounds like it was maybe a coming-of-age thing, too, that – um, if, if he was looking so so forward to um, getting that um, task, maybe if he was handed that at a certain age to help his mom out. But 
you know, that I could go on so many things about um, the little I know about the, the culture there, but it, it's the way things, I think, should be. And, you know, Richard, what Richard didn't allude to was he said as Gilbert was growing up and as a young boy, um, Gilbert and I, I believe, are about the same age, so this was not too long ago. This is not 40 years ago. This was, oh, I don't know, maybe... 15, 18 years ago. I'm sure Gilbert can correct us when he comes on, but... Erica. Yes. Not to cut you off, I have Gilbert Tuhabonye. Is that right, Gilbert? Did I do it right? That's correct. Uh, Gilbert, I want to introduce you to Erica, and I'd like to welcome him to to our show. Good morning, morning, Erica. Good morning. An absolute pleasure to have you on with us. Thank you for making the time to share your story. Thank you for having me. So, Gilbert, I want to get right after it because, you know, I'm sure that we could burn the clock for hours and hours talking, but uh, we are we are limited with the amount of time we do have, so I want to get right into it. And, you know, I want you to only do what you're comfortable doing, but I would really love if you could just provide some backstory how you came to us and the the trouble that you you were you're facing and the whole thing. Okay, first of all, I'd like to tell you my background before uh, the horrible massacre. Um, <clears throat> I was born in Burundi in a small country, and uh, growing up, I didn't have all these privilege that American had. Um, my daily routine would be getting up in the morning, and I would run, walk six miles to school. And before I do that, I would have to go fetch the water for my family so they can cook while I'm in the school. And I would stay at the school for, you know, from 8 to 5 o'clock. And then at 5 o'clock, I would go home. And then uh, it would be also again to fetch water. You're talking about walking two miles, one mile down and one mile up with uh, the jug of water at the top of my head. And then it will be a time to, you know, to go guide the, the cows. And I did that through sixth grade. And then the seventh grade, that's where uh, I was separated by my per- my parents. I went to a boarding school in seventh grade. And um, when I was in seventh grade, uh, I won a race. It was uh, five miles that the school was trying to select a team to do cross country. When I ran, I won the race, uh, and I remember, and this word started talking to me uh, every time I'm about to do a race. Uh, a coach came up to me and he said, "Son, you can be the best, not only here but all over the world." To me, I didn't have a TV, I didn't have an internet, I didn't have a computer. The word to me was the school. And I just wandered five miles. Then, 1993, October the 21st, the day that I would ever forget in my entire life, that day, I thought it was going to be a normal day, but it wasn't. Uh, The Hutu president was assassinated by extremist duties. And in act of retaliation, the Hutu came to my school they locked every Tutsi they could find, teacher, student. It was it was a very, very sad moment. I witnessed my friends dying one by one, and I was waiting for my turn. 
But before we get inside the building, we were roped together in a death march, marching towards a place. It was a gas station. It was a place they had chosen so they can burn everyone. And then uh, before you get inside the building, we were stripped naked. We didn't have any clothes. And then they would spray gasoline on our body. So, and then they would make sure that before you enter the building, they hit you on the neck. So you're kind of paralyzed. Right at the entrance, uh, there was these kids. His dad was a general in the army. He didn't want to get inside the building. And they started chopping him in two pieces, and I got a chance to jump inside the building before they can hit me on my neck. And when I got inside the building, the room was full. You're talking about a couple hundred. The room was full of innocent teachers, students, and then they burned the building. That's really when I witnessed all my friends dying and there's nothing I can do. I spent eight hours in that burning building praying to God, um, asking for help. I almost killed myself. I I tried to suicide myself, but the voice kept telling me that I'll be okay. I didn't know what was talking to me, but the voice was really strong. The voice was telling me that I'll be okay. Finally, I took a dead body. I didn't have a choice. I broke the window, and I jumped. And when I landed outside, my friends, these people were waiting for me. They were chanting. They were celebrating the massacre. And when I jumped, I jumped and landed in the midst of them. They did not see me. Up to today, I called a miracle. Then I ran. And I was running. They were chasing me. It was dark. They couldn't see me. But I was I was badly burned. I couldn't move. I couldn't move. I lost 30% of my body. And as I was trying to escape, everything got tight. It was almost 5 o'clock in the morning, and I was going to uh, a hospital, a hospital nearby, because I was. my idea was I didn't know when I would receive the help. I was going to find some, um, some medicine to clean up the wounds so I don't get in- infected. And then that's when I had the soldiers. The soldiers, they, luckily, they were, they were two kids. And some of some of them knew who I was and took me and transferred me to a hospital where I spent three months in the hospital. And in those three months in the hospital, I was really, really angry. I couldn't understand how in the world these people tried to kill me, and now I am alive. I couldn't put together because some of those were my friends. Some of those were my teammates in 4 by 4 on any time we do relays. and mm-hmm. I was also in the drumming team. Some of them were also in that team. 
I couldn't put together. I was really, really angry. But I started reading the Bible, and I came up to uh, a conclusion, forgiveness. Forgive those people who tried to kill me, and so I can move on. It was not easy until I found uh, running. And to me, running is my therapy. Running is a joy. Running is a freedom. Running is the vehicle that connected me to all the blessings that I have in my life. Really, because of that, I was able to find a joy. And then, um, um, 1996, I came here. I was, I was supposed to run in Olympics, but I didn't quite make the standard. So I was there watching and trying to reflect on my life, how lucky I am to be alive and be in this beautiful country. But I have to tell you one thing. When I was in the hospital, I received a message of hope. It was a school from here in the United States, from Tulane University. It was inviting me to run on a full scholarship. Because before all these things happened, I was the um I was the national champion eight hundred and four hundred, so there was you know, some scholarship line up here in the state. But I didn't know what happened. And that was the message of the hope. I remember going crazy because the someone just believed that I can do it. I was going to give up. And luckily, I am here. I live in Austin, a beautiful town, and I love coaching people. I still run a little bit, um, and that's probably where we are today. So, Gilbert, if I'm not uh, mistaken, you're about 38 years old now? Correct. Okay. And so... um you you were offered a scholarship. That's basically how you came to this country, correct? No, I came to this country. Yes, there was an offer for a scholarship, but uh, I came here as um, I was uh, I was really really close to making the standard for the Olympics, 1996. So the country sent me to train Lagrange, Georgia. Uh, I came here in April um, to get ready. To make the standards, I had like a two to three months to make the standard for the Olympics, but I didn't make it because I never run fast in Georgia. Uh, um, first of all, it's such a powerful story, and as I'm quite sure you're familiar, that you know we just had quite a tragedy in Connecticut recently, and by by no means did I connect these two stories, other than just by uh, coincidence, but. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you believe that uh, you, you there was a greater calling for you, and and that's why you're here now. And and um, you know I'm kind of getting all over the map here, but I know you've also developed a foundation to generate fresh water back in Africa, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But you know look at the, look at all the good you're able to do now since you survived. It's it's just you know it's just such an amazing story. Yeah, I have to attribute everything to running and also uh, for God to allow me to move forward in my life. Because really, if it wasn't a forgiveness, you know how we all struggle in uh, in our lives. We all struggle, uh, different struggle. Uh, as you said, when I was watching the news about the shoot, um, the kids, innocent kids that died, uh, it kind of reflect um, to what happened to me because I know um, I remember when I was told that I, I would 
that my parents thought I was dead because they started doing the funeral because they didn't know. They said every child that came in by my high school that it was dead. So they started doing the funeral. And watching the news, it's kind of like flashback for me because it's an, it's a similar. It's really, it's a sad situation. It's a, as you said, by no means to be a coincidence. Um, it just shows how, how powerful, um, God is and how I was spared for a moment. And that's probably what I do, what I'm doing right now. So on a lighter note, I was trying to bite my lip before I asked this because in, in consequence relative to what you spoke of, it really doesn't, doesn't matter. But the burning question I have for you, and I hope you find this funny, is that to carry this pot on your head as you're running one mile uphill, how much did that pot weigh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I'll tell you a story also. Well, what happened was, like, my parents would say, okay, we want to make, like, beer. We made our beer back home. And the water, you had to go fetch down in the valley. Um, sometimes they would be like, we want to make 50 gallons. You have to go as many as many as you can. Sometimes I would take a bigger one so I don't have to go many times. So, but so um, 20 liters, uh, 10 liters, you graduated. You see, you know, you have, they have... Uh, I don't know if you've seen some of those parts. Some are small, some are medium, some are big. I remember killing myself to take a big one so I don't have to go that many. <laughs> but you you could actually run with this pot on your head? Uh, no, it was running down to get the water. After that, no, you can't run. Uh, you can go fast. You can walk fast. <laughs> you, you can walk fast, but you cannot run uh, because the water will be moving around. Right. Wow. Yeah. So some of these endurance athletes doing these ultras can can take a lesson from you, Gilbert, as to how to walk up a hill quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing what um I wish I wish you guys um you would see how these kids they do that with joy too. They do with joy. I bet if I tell my children to go get the water they would be whining. But yeah. these, <laughs> these kids they do with joy. I also I, I'm reading your book, um right now, uh, The Voice in Your Heart, and I've been away uh, and traveling and things like this lately, so I really haven't had a chance, and I, I apologize for, you know, the bits and pieces I've actually uh, had a chance to read so far, but I, I read that as a young boy, you would hunt with your father for antelope with a spear, and um, it draws me back to what a few of the things that I read in the research that Chris McDougall did with uh, Born to Run, where he spoke of how these African tribesmen would essentially run the antelopes or their prey down to exhaustion so that they can get close enough to kill them with a spear or what have you. So you actually have done that, correct? Yes. Uh, you know what? When people here go, oh, I went hunting, and they take guns, that's cheating, man. Uh, and then... <laughs> Look, um, we lived on this top of the mountain, and uh, the way they would do is you hear noise. It, it, it was always Saturday morning or Sunday morning. You hear noise, you're like, nee, 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 nee. you know that's an animal coming. You just got out from your um, from your uh, your house, and you see people chasing an animal, and you join the group. 
this animal has probably been running for a couple a couple months. They're tired, and then sometimes these animal uh, they will hide under the or jump in the water because they're the tired, and you just go and uh, it, man, we did it by arrows, we did it by stick, we did it by uh, no gun. I did it. Right. So, but you you could uh, you know the the sound you made that's a communication signal between the the hunters, right? They let yes. you know that something's coming, right? Yeah, there's no whistle, there's nothing. You use your inside voice to alert everyone. You see the animal, you're trying to show them, and they are running everywhere. Um, you just go. They heard you, man. That's it. And everybody comes, and uh, uh, it's fun. It was fun. And then remember, <laughs> I. I, I think it was when it was my uh, the fun part of uh, hunting because you get a chance to run chasing the animal. You see they they're jumping. You think about gazelles, they're jumping and you follow them, but they've been running for long. They're kind of tired. You're getting closer to them. It was just like incredible, man. It was yeah. So, but you now you obviously were running barefoot. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so that. But, but I mean, of course, Richard. <laughs> so coming up as a young boy going to school every day and all the things that you did, running back and forth, you did this pretty much barefoot most of the time. Yes, I think I remember. I remember my first pair of shoes. It was when I was uh, going to um, middle school. Like when I passed the national test, you know, every, you gotta wear the shoes because the, the school required to wear the shoes. Um, but elementary school, no shoes, man. No. Um, you would be able to find in the book uh, when I first wore my first shoes, even um, when I went to the market, there was a tons of great selection, and you'd be surprised what kind of shoes that I got. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, uh, when you were training in your running, were you wearing shoes, or did you do a lot of the running barefoot? Uh, my first my first race that I won uh, was barefoot, uh, the five miles. Okay. It was barefoot, um, and also training. I felt comfortable running barefoot versus shoes, because the shoes we get. Remember, the shoes we get in Africa, it's very hard to come up to a brand new. It was always secondhand. Right. Uh, it's used. You know, like the shoes you use, like a 350 miles, and you send to us. Those are the shoes we used. So um, <clears throat> it was always fun to run barefoot. I felt uh, that it was more natural. But when I moved here, because it would kill, running barefoot was some strange when I was 96. Right. And I started wearing shoes, and I started coming up with injuries um, that I never had Achilles. I never had Achilles before. Um, so here's the story. Well, yeah, no, and we, uh, just to give you a little bit about us, I have this thing that we refer to as the natural running network. And what what we do when we coach people is we try to get them to engage the ground, to, to let their feet feel the ground. And we don't teach them to run barefoot because, you know, we're sissies. Our feet are not trained from, from you know, young to old. Uh, where we, you know, we're toughened up enough to take it. So for for someone 40 years old to decide, okay, because Gilbert says take my shoes off, I'll go take my shoes off and run like he did, they're going to hurt themselves because their feet are too weak. But um, we do believe that getting away from shoes that impede signal to the body 
is very, very important, and to learn how to run more in, in a neutral format rather than a shoe with a heavy heel. And I, I agree. Uh, I'm assuming that you're probably, you know, just intuitively, that's kind of how you, you roll, right? Yes, I agree 100% with you. Uh, I think as I was telling you earlier, lifestyle, uh, you see you see all those guys in the Kenyan and in, uh, the Ethiopian and the Moroccans. Growing up, they do a lot of barefoot. And um, even the shoes they wear, if you look at those races, it's like really don't have anything, no cushion. Um, and as you were saying, it's very difficult here. You have to, to treat this, um, what I call our, our runners, different because... You can't take someone 40 years old and then change uh, all of a sudden. You gotta walk slowly. Um, you know, dropping, moving from heavy shoes all the way to minimal. But it has to be a good plan and not just, it doesn't happen overnight. Right. So I am with you. I agree with you. So now, Gilbert, uh, you, you do a lot of coaching now, right? You, uh, I mean, that's, that's your, your life right now, right? Yes, I enjoy coaching because to me, uh, I lost the uh, competition eager. I used to compete um, until probably four years ago. Uh, right now, I find I find the joy coaching people is such a rewarding um, what I call experience when you have someone qualify for Boston, for example. Like someone never thought would qualify for Boston, you give them a pass and a plan to qualify for Boston is such rewarding. And also, I coached some high school, um, St. Andrew's Episcopal High School here in Austin. We won five championships in the cross country. And, you know, when I first started, they didn't even have um, a team. Right now, the cross country itself, boys and girls, we have 65 kids out of 300 kids run cross country. And... There's no such rewarding to see a five championship uh, coming home to a school never know, known for, you know, for uh, nothing to be five times. So That's I amazing. enjoy coaching adults. I enjoy coaching kids. I enjoy um, coaching, period. It's just a great way to give back to the community. So let me ask you, what is, what is the favorite message you have when you meet a new runner and you're trying to help them with their running? What is what is the go-to information you like to deliver? Um, but one one um, when I coach someone, first I have to make them feel comfortable. Some some people, especially beginners, they feel intimidated by me when they read when they read the uh, the bio about me, what I've done, and they get intimidated. So I put them in a comfort level um, to trust me, to believe in me. And then, uh, I don't know if you've heard, I'm also a funny person. I'm a funny person. Um, I've seen your videos. What? I've seen your videos coaching. (laughs) You are, you're pretty hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I make it fun. I try to make it fun. And um, I like to inspire. And I put in myself, in my head, what these people are looking for. You know, I have... uh, I have um, um, a paper they fill out, know what they are looking for. And once I know what they are looking for, it's very easy. Um, I use inspire, I use the uh, 
I inspire runners to do their best. I use a, a positive feedback. So everything that I do is I have to know my athletes where they are uh, in terms of how fast they're running, um, if they're improving, if they're not improving. I also have on the weekends, every Friday, I host like one-on-one um, kind of a feedback um, time where I spend the time with a runner to learn their weakness and help them get stronger and believe in themselves. Most of the people don't believe themselves, um, and I make them believe themselves. Uh, it, it's it's really powerful um, to trust your runner, to believe in your runner, and then once they know the coach believes them and trust them, yeah, they go crazy, so they run incredible times. Really, I inspire runner to do the best they can. Um, so are uh, you, uh, my guess is, and I, I've seen, like I said, I saw some of your videos on YouTube, and I see you work with them on the infield of the, uh, you know, like a soccer field or a football field, and you do a lot of technique work. You teach them proper mechanics, which is, I, I feel, very, very important, especially for new runners and especially for those that started out running on their heels. Do you spend time trying to help these runners get off their heels? Yes. Um, what I do, what I do in, in terms of um, the first day, it's always to uh, learn what muscle doesn't work. Um, as you know, and, and also being a coach, there is no universal running um, style. We help runner learn how to be comfortable with their running, how to prevent them from. Um, getting injured. I spend a lot of time uh, working on the drills, uh, especially developing the muscle we have used by running, such as the, you know, the knee, the quads, the back, the calves, and uh, make sure the athletes have a strong, strong uh, feet because the power, if they lose anything, just think about if you don't have, uh, if you have a problem in just a toenail problem it can trigger your uh, biomechanics. I make sure that the number one they do, they make sure they have a strong feet. And then and then make sure that range of motion, um, maybe you've seen us doing some of the drills to help them with range of motion. And then have them to avoid being tensing up while they run because most people are tense. I, I guess it's work and um, who knows. Uh, so when they're running, it's natural. When they're running, they're getting more air. When they're running, it's more fun. So really, I spend a lot of time developing those muscles I've used by running. Um, and before you know it, the runners are hooked, and they can go longer, and they run, you know, fast time. Do you teach them to sing? Yes. <laughs> yes, man. Uh, you want to you wanna hear some? <laughs> I really do. <laughs> You know what? Tell you, I listened to your video, and uh, I I make jokes about um, trying to be able to, to do the songs you do because I don't know how to do it. But I mean, uh, well, one to is, find uh, the rhythm, right? You got to find rhythm in your running. Yes, you do. Uh, mm -hmm. Like my cousin Bernard, who lives here, when we go run, we sing because also we speak. He speak. We speak the same language. It's so fun. We can cover seven to ten miles, and even before you know it, <laughs> we smoke, we are talking one another in the song. It's fun. Um, one of the songs you do, I, I think it was you. 
Um, it's got to do with the lion can't catch you. Kind of, kind of. Is that you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Give me a look. Can you give us like a little taste of it and then explain what it means? You want to sing? Yeah, I want you to do it. So, so I can hear. Uh, first. Uh, we go. It's called Yongwe. Yongwe, do you sing? Yongwe, do you fight? Yongwe, Yongwe, do you fight? Yongwe, 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 do you sing? Yongwe, do you fight? Yongwe, Yongwe, Yongwe. So um, that's awesome. Love it, love it. It's got great rhythm. What does it mean? <laughs> it's like you pretend you've been chased by a, by a lion, and um, and then what I was saying was the lion is coming from behind. There was no, there's no way it's gonna catch me, and then uh, and then it's it's in front. <laughs> we gotta make sure that there's no way. So what are you trying to tell? You? It's motivate yourself. The lion is coming behind. It won't catch me. The lion is coming from front. He won't catch me. No way. I am stronger than a lion. I'm faster than a lion. Pretty much like that. There's so a, do you have your runners actually sing with you? Yes. They love I think it. that's great. They love it. Uh, they love it. It's awesome. And that's how we celebrate also our birthdays. So I make sure that every time there's someone birthdays, um, we put that in the middle and they go, so everybody can sing. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> Hey, you know, Richard, I, I, I got an idea for you to make you a million dollars. It'd be great for your foundation. <laughs> you, you, have, you have to put that song on an audio tape uh, okay. so people can listen to it through their iPad or iPod while they're running. And then they can sing it too, you know? You teach it because, I love it. you know, us white people, we, you know, and I shouldn't say white people when I'm speaking of me because I'm, I'm Cuban, so, um, um, you know, I guess I'm Hispanic. So, but anyway, white people have no rhythm, and and uh, you know, running is a rhythm thing, you know. Yes. And the the looser you are, the more comfortable you are. You move the rigidity away from your body. You're 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 gonna you're gonna flow. You're gonna you're gonna have much more uh, engagement with the ground and and just much more effortless. And I'm sure that that's you, that's how you you grew up, right? Yes, what what happened was the coaches would say, hey, guys, today's recovery day. You have to run 45 minutes. He knew 45 minutes is like a seven miles, right? Yeah. So we started singing. Actually, one of the, uh, my favorite besides that, it was is it this one called Numarama. Numara, we have a, we have a, we have a. we have a, we have a. Numarama. So what it is, it means lasts forever. And this song, you can go over and over. And it's a song, it's about teasing one another. I would tease you, Richard. It is a time to get married, Richard, because when they make the pain, you're alive. When they create San Diego or your city where you're alive. So something that fun, so people can laugh and, and get, keep engaged, and before you know it, the distance is over. And um, I remember one time uh, we finished that run in 42 minutes, and the coach is like, I told you guys to run 45 <laughs> minutes. So we recovery, were recovery. Fun. And uh, really, I can go on and on. Uh, but, uh, no, but see, the recovery for you happened in 42 minutes, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Three minutes. 
Yeah, but yeah, we're supposed to run, it was seven miles. We're supposed to run, you know, 6.30, but we're not going fast because it's fun. Uh, uh, it was yeah. fun because you don't focus. Again, this is not where here you tie up with a Garmin and high rates. No. You run using your inside voice. Um, you run how you feel, not, you know, driven by Garmin or um, all these gadgets that we have here. Yeah. Well, I, I'm kind of a gadget guy, but, you know, I think probably the reason I'm a gadget guy is because I don't know how to sing. You, and you didn't grow up in Africa, Richard. No, no, no. You just want to know where you are. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the singing is cool, though. I, I, I'm telling you, if you put that in an audio track that pe can, people can download off the Internet, you're going to make a bazillion dollars. <laughs> and you can, you can use it to uh, fortify your foundation. Let's, can we talk about uh, the Gazelle Foundation? I, I, I think I, I really want the audience to know what work you do and encourage them to help to support your efforts. Yeah. Um, so Gazelle Foundation, when I, when I first uh, wrote the book, um, I would go speak to places. Uh, I would go speak to elementary churches and, and so on. And one day I was running with my two friends, Peter um, Peter Rauch and Paul Pugh. We were doing a 22 miles. And this guy, Paul, was just coming back from um, Ethiopia for human Habitat for Humanity. And he suggested that I wish to start a foundation to help people in Burundi. Really, what a great idea. Then we started the foundation, and up to today, my friend, I can tell you that I'm so happy what the foundation is doing. We're able to provide a um, 15,000, more than 15,000 are getting clean water close to home. Remember the story that I told you used to get up and go get a water two miles? Sure. You know how how uh, hard it is. Some of the kids, some of the students used to miss school because it was too much to get the water three miles out and then go to school six. It was too much. And right now, by the way, I just got back last year, a year ago. Uh, I was in Burundi by this time of the year. Uh, I was visiting these projects that we've done, visiting this community that we served, and I came back with extra joy because these people were happy because their life had changed. These people are getting clean water to home. They don't have to walk distance to get water. Children, instead of spending hours and hours, they can go to school and become better educated. They hospital, the clinic that close by, people don't get you sick. They don't get sick like they used to because they are drinking the clean water. And women, they do all the work. That's the one they fetch water when the kids are at school. They don't have to do that anymore. They can focus on the other activities. And uh, water also has united people. The Hutu and Tutsis when they're getting clean water coming from natural resources, they're shelling. They don't think about killing one another. They're thinking about maintaining uh, and sharing more of this water because when we go to places, we give 
they water based on the needs. It doesn't matter they are Hutu or Tutsi, every tribe, we're giving water to all these communities without any um, tribe um, to differentiate any kind of um, tribes. We give you the water based on the need. And the Hutu, the Tutsi, uh, Pygmies, they're all happy. They were joyful, and they were so happy to see me. Um, really, remember, it costs us $25. $25 you can give a family a water for life. Wow. That's impressive. So now how do they uh how would someone donate money to your foundation, Gilbert? There's GazelleFoundation dot com. Gazelle they can go there and then they can uh they can offer a donation. They can offer the nation. We also host a race that you guys can do it. It's in October. It's the best race here, 10 mile. Uh, it's called Run for the Water. That's another way you can participate. It's the best race. Um, it's been voted the number one race here in Austin, uh, even in Texas. It's 10 mile. That's great. You know, I, we we uh, we trained some people for a 10 mile race. Uh, that uh, when was it? It was September, Erica. Um, no, it was October. Okay, so we, yeah, I trained I trained a group of runners for a ten miler, and you know it, it was pretty cool. I mean, uh, we won the race overall, and uh, we dominated the age groups. It was it was awesome. I like ten miles. Ten miles is a very cool distance to run. It's not so far that you need to run slow. It's not so far that uh, you're gonna you know blow your energy stores out. Uh, it's just a good. I like it better than a half marathon. I like it better than a ten k. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great. This one it shows you the the beauty of Austin. We run, we we're lucky to have the best uh, place in Austin. But um, whatever you can do, whatever you can do to help us um, to change the life of these people, it would be greatly appreciated. Other than that, um, you guys, you're awesome. You're my big fan. <laughs> Robert, is that the only race you produce? Yeah, it, it, it's enough. That's the only race that the foundation that we really produce because um, it's a whole year. It's a whole year event. We grow. This race has grown tremendously. We started with you know thousand runner. Now we have over forty five hundred runner. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's growing tremendously, and um, because of the growth, it allows us to. Uh, to provide more water, um, you know, to to the village of Burundi. Now, um, you know, we produce a race, and we're actually looking at uh, eventually producing a series of races around the country. Which Maybe one? we can connect with you and help to raise some money for your foundation. Man, that, now you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, you know, the, the Natural Running Network, you know, we do clinics, and we, we teach coaches to teach people. What we try to do is, you know, you know you've been around long enough and, and with, with your background in the, even in this country, um, a, a lot of very high-spirited people that uh, are enthusiastic about running take the responsibility to be the coach where maybe they don't really have coaching talent. They just... They're, you know, they're very accountable. They'll show up and they'll make sure people show up and they try to keep them encouraged. But they're not really educating uh, as well as they could and they don't have the ability to help people when injuries start to, to show up. And, you know, the things that you that we talked about earlier, 
uh, how to teach people to become stronger so they avoid the injuries as they start to take on more and more mileage, especially those that are trying to run marathons. So that's kind of the thing that we're really all about is developing our coaching uh, network around the country. And our, our end game, we hope to develop a series of events that people that are tied to us can participate in for less money than, than is typical. Because, you know, these race fees are getting very expensive around the country. Oh, yeah. Know? I know. And so we, we're hoping to do kind of like a Costco-style winning uh, <laughs> series where, you know, if you're a member, you pay half, you know, and if you're a non-member, you pay the full yard. I would like one day, uh, maybe through your people, through Alicia or Susan, to, to discuss possibly getting involved with you guys and seeing if we, can, if we can help to raise some money for your foundation. That would be awesome, man. I told you, talking, and this is good. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you ever get out to California? Yes. California is my favorite, uh, it's my favorite uh, I would call a state, because it reminds me uh, it's closer to it's closer to um, to Burundi weather. San Diego uh, yeah. area, that's, that's like Burundi. Um, you know, I started uh, just last week. Uh, I just expanded my, my coaching. I'm, I'm now coaching some people doing track workouts uh, at Santa Monica College. Really? And, yeah, and maybe one day we'll get you out there. You know, you could, you could come run with us. You could you share. Know what? You I could love it. it. I want to learn the songs. I do, too. You best let me know when you come out. You know, I'm, I told you I'm Cuban, so I have rhythm. And, and I know so you do. I just need, I just need the, I just need the music, man. I need the material. I will, I will. I promise. I promise. Uh, just come me there, and then, uh, and then I'll be, uh, I'll be interested. Seriously. We're gonna connect. I, you know, I don't know uh, if Alicia told you this, but. I wrote an article in a magazine I write for about uh, two or three years ago about African runners. Yeah. And uh, I was asked to write the article because there was a guy, a biomechanist, that wrote this proposition about American marathoners versus the African marathoners and how um, he felt that eventually the Americans were going to beat the, 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 the Kenyans because... Uh, or the African runners, because uh, what we're lacking is just the skill sets. And and I said, you know what? At the end of the day, the American runners are too soft, and they don't have the motivation that the African runners have to win these events. Because when an African runner wins a marathon, he feeds a village. When when an American runner wins. You know, he goes home. He might not even. He, he may come up short because he just uh, wasn't motivated that day. And I just said the socio-economical issues that these Africans bring to play with their training is far too motivating, far too powerful for them to let somebody beat them. So I didn't believe that they could win. But anyway, the short story was, I promoted your book in that article, and I used the cover picture from your book uh, in that article as well. That's how I found you, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> That was a couple of years ago. So we've been destined to meet. <laughs> yeah, that, you crack me up, man. This is awesome. This is awesome. You, you know, know I also I also want to tell you something. You take away um, it, kind of an inspirational. Um, it goes line along with what you were talking about. Um, when we were kind of trying to come to America, 
you know, we would be like a, a group of 10, 15 guys training really, really hard. I remember, i give you an example. Coaches gave us uh, 10 times uh, 1,000, and he, and he wanted us to run 253, 250 to 253. You know what pace it is? Half. Huh? Four and a half. Yes. So, so, so the, the, the bottom line was, our, in the middle of the in the middle of the workouts, kids would go, you know, build a house. Do you know the term build a house? Um, yeah. Building a house. Do you know that what that means? No, no. So anyway, do you know when, how much like when those guys that win races or either New York, um, uh, Boston, London, Berlin, all these big money? Do you know what they do with the money? They buy mm-hmm. cows. And houses. They build houses. <laughs> okay, they build the big houses. Um, so there was a time when when. Now we become an inspiration. When the kids are training hard, they'll be like, um, you know, you know, they'll be, um, sorry to say it on the radio, they'll be vomiting, okay? Yeah. And then instead of coaching to come in and say, oh, sorry, kids, how how you doing? They're like, build a house, two stories, three stories. Because you know what? <laughs> All these guys, they work so hard, they work so hard, and it become if you don't puke during a workout, you would never get there. Um, so it become an inspiration. When you see someone doing that, they call build a house. I just have to tell you that. because yes. What? So that, I'm going to use that. I'm going to... <laughs> I'm taking creative license. So next time I see somebody throwing up, I say, oh, you're building a house. Yes, build a house. Two story, three stories. Yes, that's uh, I use that a lot. Air conditioning. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. Well, listen, Gilbert, first of all, I want to wish you the best of holidays to you and your family. Yes. Um, when, when, does, when do you guys celebrate Christmas? Uh, you mean in, in Burundi? Yeah. Uh, we celebrate it on Christmas, and it's different Christmas. Uh, here, Christmas is about gift, it's about giving. If you didn't give someone, they get, you know, they feel uh, that you don't love them. Um, so for us, Christmas, it was about going to church. It's about wearing some kind of new clothes. They go crazy on New Year. New Year, they would go crazy. That's a really celebration. Here, it's the opposite. Christmas is big. Um, it's big back in Africa, but it's more like going to church, um, attending those midnight mass, and then um, that's about that's about Christmas. And wearing, yeah. and also get a chance to eat a new food, um, you know, something new you haven't eaten before, and um, uh, that's it's the celebrating on a Christmas day. It's on a Christmas. Well. Anyway, anyway, I just want to make sure that you know that we're very pleased to have had you today. There will be several thousand people that are going to hear this interview with you, and I hope that that affects your your foundation and, and uh, it does some good for you because you have a tremendous amount of purpose, my friend, and one day we're going to meet. I, one day. I, just remind them... Uh, I'm not trying to promote anything. It takes $25. Think about what you can do with $25 to give a family for life. Water. That's amazing. 
That's amazing. I, I'm putting my $25 in as soon as I get off the phone. Richard, thank yeah. you so much for this opportunity. Yeah. Uh, as you said, we will meet again. All right. Well, yeah. I think it's getting close to time to close the show. Gilbert, you have a wonderful weekend. And, again, the best to you and your family. And I want you to send some love to your runners from us, okay? I will. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.